This is a 3CR podcast. And this is Published or Not. When you hear the words wild abandon, do you think of animals left to their own device or perhaps a person's impulsive, enthusiastic behaviour? Wild abandon could be a lot of things, but it's also the title of Emily Bitto's new book. Welcome, Emily. Thanks so much for having me, Jan. The first part of this book is set in the drug-taking arty heart of New York. Will has just arrived and jumps into it full on. But what has made him leave Melbourne in such a hurry? Uh, Poor Will. He's just gone through his first big devastating heartbreak. Uh, I'm sure we can all remember that. And (laughs) I know my fantasy was to flee the country and Will actually does it. (laughs) So, quote from your book, recklessly dashed headlong, impelled by twin engines of heartbreak and humiliation. But it's not only Laura, but his family, he's keen to get away. Why is that? Yeah, Will is um, originally a small town boy and he's moved to Melbourne some time before the start of the novel and he's quite a, an insecure fellow. Uh, he, he just desperately kind of wants to be cool, to sort of belong, uh, and he really feels very intensely his kind of small town origins and, and the fact that he sort of doesn't fit in once he gets to Melbourne. Um, and he he doesn't kind of want, you know, his girlfriend to meet his family. And I think just more deeply, he, he really just wants to sort of acquire culture and, and coolness. Uh, and he doesn't know whether he ever really will be able to. <laughs> but family can be useful. So he's staying with his big brother's friend, Paul, in New York. And he sees the change in Paul and was, as you say, has a desperate wish for his own metamorphosis. Yeah. So how would you describe his week in New York? Well, he basically on his, I think, you know, first full day there makes a vow to say yes to everything. Uh, and that's kind of comes out of his feeling of, you know, not being cool enough and he sort of has this, very, very expensive uh, meal and he, he starts to worry about, you know, his dwindling bank account and, and feeling like he's overindulged and then he kind of checks himself and thinks that's his mother's thinking, uh, these ideas about overindulgence and excess and he, he decides that throwing himself into a sort of hedonist, <laughs> headlong dashing forward is going to be the way to change himself to become a new person, really. Well, Paul himself, he's a chef for celebrities and he has a girlfriend, Justine, who's an artist and has an exhibition opening. There's lots of comments, wonderful comments about contemporary art and Will's understanding of it, but there's also excessive drugs. And as you say, he uses the drugs as a false euphoria laid over the foundation of grief to blast away the phantom of Laura. But then after one excessive night, he uh, wakes shirtless, shoeless, with his boxes on, in bed with three others. So what does he do, which he has done often in the past? 
<laughs> he runs off. <laughs> Gets out of there as quickly as he can. Without really understanding what went on. Yeah. There, there were so many Negronis drunk in trendy <laughs> bars through New York, but out in the streets there are protests and it's Occupy Wall Street protests. What does Will see as the biggest divide in New York? Well, I mean, Will, I think he doesn't necessarily see the full picture and I sort of had fun playing with him as a character because his, you know, his perspective is quite subjective. He sees that the the New York experience he's having is, you know, only one version of New York, but I think he sort of just desperately wants to just throw himself into that because that's the way to forget his pain. And so he almost kind of resents, you know, realising that there are these protests going on, that it's not all um, cocaine and art, uh, art launches and skyscrapers because he just, you know, he doesn't want to see the other side of things. And I guess, you know, through him I'm sort of trying to explore that as a saying something about, the way that we often approach this time that we're living in. If you haven't got enough money, it's hard to afford it. So he finds himself running away again from facing any predicaments that he himself has caused. And where does he go to this time? So he ends up in the Midwest. He sort of, he thinks he's going to go on a road trip Uh, He's got a a copy of On the Road in his backpack, which is his favourite book. Uh, But, you know, he basically runs out of money and a girl from his uh, high school is living in the Midwest in a small town in Ohio with a guy she met online and married. He sort of feels like this is a bit of a failure to end up visiting her because, you know, it just reminds him of his home. But uh, he also meets a guy called Wayne Gage who's the collector of exotic animals. He has a a private zoo with a lot of lions, tigers and bears, (laughs) et cetera. Um, And he's quite a sort of troubled character and and by sort of fate or random chance, Will ends up working for him for a little while to try and save up some money. What just absolutely surprised me, and I'd say, Emily Beto, you've done some research on this one, is that exotics are legal for the Amish and in certain areas. So this fellow Wayne, who Will ends up working for, tells him that for the Amish, lion cubs are only worth 500, while kangaroo is worth three grand. (laughs) (laughs) Let's hear a little bit from page 222. Will finds himself needing the money, so he decides to work there for a month and he finds himself bottle-feeding lions. But let's hear from you. But hadn't he vowed, after all, to say yes to everything, to the world? Well, this was what the world was offering, wild animals, the depths and secrets of small-town America, housing and employment with a random, quite likely troubled and possibly even dangerous ageing veteran, creator of his own rogue Midwestern Xanadu and dispenser of philosophy of what utility to his own vague cause, Will was not yet sure. Will was not at sure at all. And when it came to returning an escaped tiger to its cage, another quote from Emily Bitto's book, Wild Abandon, Will was scared, truly shitless. 
his rectum crawling back up inside itself like a collapsible telescope. <laughs> so how will this end? Everybody has insights into Will. When Paul and Wayne look at Will, what do they see? I think they see different things. I mean, everyone sees Will differently. I think Paul sort of sees in him an earlier version of himself. He recognises as well in Will that small town boy just desperately trying to be cool. He sort of sees Will as a little bit pretentious and trying to sort of put on an identity, which is definitely the case. And then I think Wayne similarly sort of projects an earlier version of himself onto Will too, you know, the the age that Will is where the future sort of seems open and anything is possible and Wayne sort of really tries to encourage Will to think about what he wants in the future and not just accept the ordinary life, which I think is kind of what Will is wanting for his own life anyway, which is probably partly why he's really drawn to Wayne. You know, he sees Wayne as completely the opposite of, say, his father, who he sees as living a very boring kind of placid life. And then there's contrast. Marcus, the New York art gallery owner, sees Will as untouched by sophistication. <laughs> and he sees this as a positive and thinks, what a clever woman has raised this boy. And that's not how Will thinks about his mother. <laughs> Will would be horrified if he, <laughs> if he knew that Marcus saw him as untouched by sophistication. <laughs> Will also attracts a lot of advice from Wayne's wife, Valerie, and she says, don't hold on to delusion, and even <laughs> Wayne. But uh, does Will heed any of this advice? No, unfortunately, I don't. Uh, I don't think he's going to uh, heed the advice that he is given. Emily Bitto, your writing style certainly needs to be commented on. The first pages of this book describe Will's observations of New York, the bountiness bewilder of people and sights and smells. And into this, I'd like you to read a little bit from page nine. Sure. Perhaps since he was at this moment so truly anonymous, he might put aside his scant sophistication and deep-set fear of gaucherie <clears throat> to plunge once and briefly into the quintessence of sightseeing and emerge unmarked before midnight, and he looked up Times Square on his phone and mapped his thrilling incognito course there. Now that is rather embellished. And I know <laughs> that you thank your editor for allowing you to keep your Baroque sentences. Is this your particular style? I think it's a style that I wanted to use in this book more, you know, not, not for style for style's sake, but because of the content itself. You know, I'm sort of, with this book, I wanted to write something contemporary. I wanted to try and capture something of the sort of surrealness and excesses of the moment we're kind of living through in what is potentially the sort of sunset days of capitalism in the overdeveloped West. Um, and, you know, with the writing style to kind of capture that, the over fullness almost, the, the kind of excessiveness, and I wanted it at times to almost feel too much but then, you know, hopefully I've sort of tempered it with there's a lot of dialogue in the book, which is, you know, much more kind of uh, casual and slangy and contemporary. Uh, so there's a sort of 
mashing up of different styles and registers against each other? Well, I started out reading it and thinking, well, this is the way Will is, pretentious. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> and then <laughs> yeah. it came back to his dialogue and I realised, you know, not thoroughly so. But I also had found out some wonderful new words <laughs> like fulgurious flash or to be abnegent. <laughs> I can't even say it. <laughs> abnegent. Or what to expect at a suave parilia. And if you know anything about young men, they are often onastic with their tendencies. <laughs> yeah. uh, the characters you've built, um, um, Emily, they're so real, but Will thinks of them only as people who are bit parts in his own consuming narrative, which of course they are because you created them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah but I think you know with that I, I, I was really interested in you know exploring the idea of the kind of masculine quest narrative you know which is sort of as old as story itself you know as I mentioned Will's got a copy of On the Road in his backpack and you know it's something that I've I've read a lot of those books and I kind of acknowledge the the seductions of that you know, that kind of story of the young man going out into the world to come home transformed, seek his fortune. But at the same time, I, I did, you know, I think as a female reader, feel that there is a, a lack of kind of acknowledgement of other people in those narratives often. And there's a sense that, you know, the, the protagonist is everything and everyone that they encounter is just a kind of pawn in, in their journey to experience and that there's often a kind of trail of destruction left in their wake. So that's kind of another thing, I guess, that I was trying to explore in this narrative through Will. Well, as you know, he was on a mission to get lost, as he often yeah. talks about, and to grow. But, Emily, how hard was it? You know, you're a very sophisticated, well-spoken woman to get into the mind of a 22-year-old chap. Well, luckily, as I was writing this book, because I, uh, I co-own a bar in uh, Carlton and I was doing a lot of hours at the bar at that time and, you know, basically kind of working with a lot of young guys, young Aussie guys, and... Um, so I sort of felt like I had a really amazing opportunity there to, you know, observe and, and get to know young men, which I, I wouldn't normally have had that opportunity as a kind of woman in my late 30s. So I feel like I, uh, I had some firsthand experience. <laughs> they were all lovely, <laughs> lovely people and uh, less pretentious than well. I think I've kind of combined a bit of my own small town origins with them. <laughs> with you did it well. Men. You did it well. <laughs> now, Emily, you won the Stella Prize with your novel, The Strays, and it gave you a grass tree residency. What was that? Uh, so that is a really generous sum residency that's offered to all of the shortlisted writers for the Stella Prize by the Trawalla Foundation um, and it's down near um, near Anglesey near Point Addis and it's on this mm. beautiful property I was just kind of sitting there each day looking out on kangaroos and birds feeding from the bird bath it was just absolute heaven. <laughs> You've also had residencies in Rome and Canada 
And another one I hadn't heard of, the Felix Meyer Scholarship. Yeah, that's a travelling scholarship um, offered. It's um, administered by Melbourne Uni, but, yeah, the Felix Meyer Foundation, another, you know, there's some really amazingly generous people out there who have given money to support artists and writers to do their thing. (laughs) Well, to do their thing and to do that is to often take a reader into unexpected thoughts like, Food on aeroplanes is designed to make you constipated so you don't (laughs) overuse the toilet facilities. Or if you stop going to church, so Sunday becomes a lusty pagan holiday. (laughs) Lovely. So a young man runs from Melbourne into the excesses of capitalism in New York and again into the rural heartland of Ohio. Will he find what he is looking for? in Emily Bitto's novel, Wild Abandon. Thank you so much, Emily. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. And now it's David's turn. Underground is a graphic novel by Miranda Burton, where the lives of some associated with the Vietnam War and the social justice movement of the time intersect like burrows dug by wombats. So, Miranda, welcome to 3CR. Thank you very much, David. We must begin by looking at Hooper. Tell me about Hooper the Wombat, because he serves as a character in this novel, but also he serves as an illustrative metaphor for what's taking place, which we'll unpack later on. Hooper was a, a wombat that was put into the, the, the Vietnam War ballot in around 1972 as an act of civil disobedience. At that time, they were trying to jam the system by putting as many false names in the ballot to kind of unravel the system as much as possible. Now, the true story goes that uh, Hooper was actually sent a letter to, you know, and called up for his medical exam. And this is true also that after that letter arrived, he actually literally went underground, as wombats do. So he was actually in the care of a couple called Clifton and Marlene Pugh, who were living out in an artist community in the bush. The Pughs, of course, play a role in this, but I want to move to one of the social activists in this story, Jean McLean, because she's one of the central characters and She's a subversive figure in her own right, but she's very concerned about the Vietnam War and in many ways she changes the attitude of Australia through the Save Our Sons group. Yes, uh, she was um, part of the Victorian branch of the Save Our Sons movement, which of course was a a mechanism within within a much wider peace movement Um, and she was... um, you know, very influential at the time in bringing women together. And they were all, you know, relatively naive at the time. And they set about creating a kind of an, I guess, an anti-conscription movement. Initially, they were against overseas service. But later that evolved and became more of an anti-war movement as they became more educated and gained a greater understanding of of what this war really meant at home, but also in Vietnam, which was a place that nobody really knew anything about at that time. She also became one of the Fairly Five. Can you tell us about 
the Fairley Five. Yes, so she and four other women uh, were protesting at the Department of Labour and National Service. They were handing out leaflets to to young men who were going in to register and they were, you know, the, the, the women were saying, you don't have to do this. You can claim a conscientious objector status. And, of course, the police picked them up a few months later after a court hearing. They, they were all very quickly bustled off on Easter Friday to um, the women's prison in Fairley. What's fascinating here is there was an initial acceptance of things like conscription, and your novel actually serves to provide an historical perspective of an Australia that was going through a transformation because the role of women, uh, as I said, the acceptance of conscription, it was all very naive in many ways, the nature of Australia at the time. Yes, very much so. Uh, There was, I I don't know, a very generally obedient attitude, I think, think among most Australians in the early 1960s, mid-60s. It took a few years for the the tides to really change. Uh, I think by about 1967, the attitudes had had pivoted more towards really questioning the war. Uh, But, um, you know, that most people were wanting to be loyal to the government. I mean, the, the government was telling them that, you know, we were under a communist threat, the, the domino theory, so to speak. Um, and uh, so we had to fight the communists there rather than here. And, and this was just widely accepted by most Australians and not questioned. In many ways, there seems to be a contemporary equivalency today, given our attitude towards asylum seekers and this quest for social justice has come to the forefront once again under the pandemic as well. It's curious that a novel about Vietnam can still have relevancy today in that regard. Well, it's a really interesting time to reflect, uh, especially now that we're having conversations about the 20 years of the war on on terror uh, and, you know, the fact that in recent weeks, watching the fallout in Afghanistan, suddenly we're we're reflecting, oh, remember remember Vietnam, uh, this holding pattern of our alliance with the, the United States administration and our willingness to, to sort of unquestionably go into military conflict is being called into question very much so. We need to question it. It's, it's, it's urgent and I, I really i am quite concerned about the, the real cost of, of future conflict if we stay in this holding pattern. What is fascinating then is what Jean McLean actually achieved. And when you look at it, you have other characters like May Ho who are helped and supported by Jean. And May Ho went on to uh, make a significant contribution to Australian society after she'd fled Vietnam. Absolutely. Maya has an extraordinary uh, story and a very inspiring one. And she's from a family of generations of extraordinary women, in fact. Uh, And I think we need to keep reminding ourselves of the contribution that refugees make to Australia. And, and of course, uh, the, the government doesn't really want us to see the human face of refugees so that they can maintain these abhorrent policies. 
you know, incarcerating them indefinitely. And it's a really interesting opportunity to reflect on the Vietnam era and how we treated the Vietnamese asylum seekers then and uh, how much more compassionate we were then uh, compared to more recent years. And it also speaks to people like Jean McLean who make a very simple contribution by offering help and assistance. It's in vast contrast to the politics of the day and the mechanism of and bureaucracy of governments. Absolutely. Uh, it should also be said that it was a two-way street with Mai because Mai actually helped Jean too in, in big ways. You know, Mai and Jean were, were kind of working in the same electorate in West Melbourne. And, you know, it was a very difficult time in the 70s and 80s where, when the Vietnamese people were settling, um, just adapting. And Jean was trying to build bridges with this community and Mai was instrumental in helping her with that. Now, this is a graphic novel, so we will have to actually talk about the way it's presented. And I can't go into everything, but there's a very visceral impact in some of these illustrations. As I said before, there's Hooper, the Wombat, and the intersecting burrows, and you've used that as a metaphor to show interconnecting lives. But I'd like to just take one double-page spread of my hoe, uh, surrounded by barbed wire, but there are sacks of grain that almost become like leaves and such. Can you explain that illustration? That illustration appears uh, just after I've described her, her praying in a little uh, bomb shelter that they had in their own home. And she's about maybe 10 years old, I think, in that drawing. And I was trying to capture the incredible emotion that, that I personally imagined her having when, you, when you're just so young and you're so afraid and you just want the, the war to stop. Um, you know, it's, you've been born into war. It's virtually all you know. And uh, you, just, you just don't want to, to have to see it anymore. And that I'm sort of recalling Maya's words here. Uh, so I, I created a landscape, although it's a kind of oceanic landscape somewhat, where she is praying uh, in this sort of sea of um, sacks of sand and barbed wire, which kind of curl around her like a wave. And I, I, I also wanted to draw that because it's a sort of a foreshadowing of what was to come 10 years later when she escaped by boat and, you know, found herself on an equally tumultuous sea. There's a juxtaposition in many ways of life and death in that illustration, but it means, therefore, that we read graphic novels in a slightly different way. It's open to interpretation. We can read pictures in graphic novels, I think. Um, you know, the old adage, a picture can tell a thousand words, sometimes also great as a graphic artist to try and, um, I guess, simplify or kind of reduce in a really potent way a message through images. Sometimes you want the emotional impact of something to, to kind of speak louder than the words. Well, the book is entitled Underground. It's a graphic novel speaking about the Vietnam War and the attitudes in Australia, but it's also reflective of 
attitudes that are taking place today. The author illustrator is Miranda Burton, and it's an Alan and Unwin release. So, Miranda, thank you very much for talking with me today. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. You've just been listening to Published or Not on 3CR. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.